0: Welcome to Talking Junk. I'm your host, Jason Melendez. Melendez. Live now every week on Fridays. Talking Junk. A multitude of most professionals in different aspects, different walks of life. You have to come on and talk junk like a normal person. <laughs> hello welcome to talking junk today with me tolin and i'm going to be uh, interviewing for you today a mr jonathan mclernan he is a eating disorder expert he is a well-traveled man he's ex-military he has many experiences many things that are inspirational share with us today and uh let's get to it so let me
1: bring on with us Mr. Jonathan McLernan,
0: how are you doing today, sir?
1: I'm doing fantastic. You know, I was listening to that intro, and I was, uh, I was like, "Boy, I don't think I'm like hip hop enough for that for that intro." <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, we like
0: to give out the nice, you know, chill vibes. You know, everybody who comes
1: yeah, on yeah. the show, let's know your vibe. Yeah, yeah, but I, but I like it. I mean, I love music. Um, I back in the day, I studied music at university, but I decided I wasn't going to make any money at it, so. Okay. Uh, I was like, oh, so then I got into like chemistry and, and uh, marketing psychology because I thought maybe I was going to be a science teacher. Okay. And uh, well, and then I got like most of the way through that and then I decided to join the Navy. <laughs> I guess I okay. About. So right there, a
0: whole bunch <laughs> of different changes. Every Everything else I, I keep learning more and more. It's like, my goodness, how much could you have done so much uh, already in your life? Hey, Jasmine. Uh, that's hey, Jasmine. Jay's how you wife. doing? She's usually with us on the break Uh um, Fantastic. <laughs> But let's let's kind of pull back a little bit to college. What kind of brought you into college? Did you know as a kid what you wanted to do? Where you I had just no idea. <laughs> so just.
1: I mean, so so I had kind of an interesting. We can go right back to the very beginning. I had an interesting birth story. I was born at twenty six okay. weeks. So you know, average oh, wow. gestation is like yeah 39, 40 weeks, and I, I popped out fourteen weeks early. So, wow. um, I wasn't actually expected to to survive. Um, thankfully, my dad had the pre- like. I was born at home. My mom originally thought she had to go to the bathroom. You know, didn't mm-hmm. uh, wasn't expecting me going into labor at 26 weeks, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this is back in 1982. I've, I've crossed over the 40 40 year mark. Crazy. Um, wow. But my dad You're had the presence yeah. of mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey Amanda, how you doing? Um, had my dad had the presence of mind to do CPR with his pinky finger and use like a tiny syringe to unplug my airways and sort of mm. got my heart beating my and my lungs inflated, which. Without that, I probably would have had like serious brain damage and and may not have survived. And then, you know, I got trucked off to to a hospital, and then I was on life support for about nine weeks while they uh, basically tried to keep me alive. So, wow!
0: Kick it right up. Before you even got here, you were already going through stories of survival. Like that's that's crazy. yeah yeah.
1: So, well, I guess one thing the doctor said was uh, this kid has a temper. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> you decided you were going to live, and nothing was going to stop you. Yeah, yeah. I decided I wanted to be alive, I guess, and so I was. I was born a bit of a fighter. <clears throat>
0: okay. All right. So did that kind of continue early in the childhood, or was it kind of mellow for a bit before things got uh, crazy again?
1: You know, I, I was always like, I have an older brother, and so I was like a pretty okay. feisty kid. I was, I was pretty competitive with him. I wanted to learn, do everything he was doing. Of course, uh, tried to keep up with him. Um, used to have terrible temper tantrums. Like mm-hmm. my parents say, like they, they would basically. Um, have to just turn on the cold shower and stick my hand into the cold shower to get me to cool down. Cause I, I would just get so worked up that, wow. uh that they're like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this kid. Do you know? No. And, and uh so, but eventually, you know, I mean, of course I was, I was an ordinary kid. It's just that I had these, these moments where I would just like snap and. and well, you were it's fighting all, for
0: your life from literally before day one. So it, yeah it's yeah. a little bit fair.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I just kind of had like this, I think this really strong independent streak, I guess it, it is what it was. And so even from my, my mom says, I used to like take my bottle and my teeth and, and like, uh, run over behind the curtain and try to feed myself um and so it probably stems from you know being being born uh, i spent the first like two 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 and a half months of my life in an incubator on life support instead of like normally a baby would be like connected to the mom and lots of skin-to-skin contact maybe some nursing that kind of thing whereas you know i'm laying flat on my back hooked up to wires and machines and stuff mm-hmm. and so of course i don't remember any of this but uh i, I do i do see the pictures and right. uh so, yeah, I think there's an element of that because I'm really fascinated by brain development by um, kind of like, I mean, this, we'll, we'll get into the sort of the behavioral psychology stuff of what I do. But I look back now and I go, oh, you know what? A lot of that kind of makes sense when you tie it back to kind of my origin story. Right. Okay. Wow.
0: That's, that's pretty cool.
1: So, like... So were you kind
0: of always like an adventurous kind of person as well Were you always taking risks or uh, did that yep. kind of come
1: from <laughs> my uh my parents had to put a leash on me. Um I think it's because I'm just like an intensely curious uh, you know guy and I just wanted to know everything worked and and try to figure uh, you know figure so much out and so um yeah but <laughs> uh, yeah AB rabbit. Yeah. So, so they, they really had to sort of keep an eye on me cause I just like rip off into crowds and just go and, and I like, I wasn't afraid of people or anything. And so they were like, Whoa, we gotta, we gotta like tame this, this kind of kid here. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, and I got into a lot of fights as a kid too. I think that was that temper coming out. I was like really, really competitive and, uh, you know, I, I look back now and I'm like, back then, like schoolyard fights were just, you know, you get into a fight till one guy got knocked down, and then you kind of walked away and you're like, I won. You know, mm. it wasn't like this. I don't know. It seems like fights have changed from back in the day, you know, Yeah,
0: they've gotten more aggressive from just a one on one about you and me to uh, yeah. you beat me. Well, now I'm just going to go get some friends and we're going to solve this and I'm going to win in the end. And
1: yeah. 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 So it wasn't like that back in the, back in the day. It sounds so funny to be talking like that. You know, it's hard to believe I'm yeah. 40 sometimes.
0: <laughs> I, I just hit 30 last year and I still, I feel young, but then I'll say yeah. some things. I'm like, all right, I guess, I guess some time is fast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, like my wife did something really cool. She had, uh, she had a bunch of people record, she record like video messages for me, about like memories uh, over the course of my life and uh, you know, Mm -hmm. fun experiences. I remember, and maybe some advice for, from people that were over 40. And uh, one of my friends uh, who lives in Italy, he's a Venezuelan guy that lives in Italy. And uh, he said, you know, your brain's still going to think you're young and you're going (laughs) to still think like, yeah, I can do everything I used to do and all of that. He said, but your body's going to correct you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Definitely will. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: okay so uh let's go up to around college sounds like you had a bunch of different angles that you're working with did you feel like going in you knew what you wanted to do or you just kind of choosing a major and saying i'll figure it out
1: uh i did i did kind of have a like i had a real love for music and i I thought maybe i want to get into like being a music producer um Mm -hmm but I really, had, I grew up in a small town of like 2000 people. I was like the university I went to had more hot girls than my town had people. It was like for, for, <laughs> for, for my young male brain, it was like, oh my gosh, I went to a university campus, had like, you know, 25,000 students. And so, and a lot of, you know, young university girls. And I was like, holy cow, I didn't realize there's many good looking girls and like, Women's you know, apparently. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I kind of figured out that, um, I wasn't gonna, like I was in the right place. I didn't know the right people. I wasn't really connected the way I thought I was in terms of, of getting into sort of music, music production. And so I was like, OK, I'm going to go a practical route. You know, biology is kind of too easy. I shouldn't put it that way. But my thought was, you know, biology is one of the easier sciences. Physics mm-hmm. is like the hard science. Chemistry is kind of middle of the road. So why, why, don't, I, why don't I get into chemistry? So it wasn't really mm-hmm. a, a passion decision. It was kind of more like a logical choice. Mm-hmm. And then marketing psychology was just like, well, you know, maybe if I ever get into business, I should know something about marketing. Um, I had no idea that what I was learning in that element or that realm would like tie into what I do later in life and understanding people's behaviors. Okay. So before you knew it, you were already learning something for your true profession. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, the one thing is like, I I get bored very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I don't know, I've never been diagnosed with ADD, but like, you know, sometimes I have a pretty short attention span. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so, uh, I, I remember one of my exams, like I, I played video games the whole night uh, before and then just drank, <laughs> a bunch of, yeah, drank a bunch of jolt Cola and walked in, wrote my name on the exam, went and handed it and walked away. And, and um, you know, I, I fa- failed the exam, but I didn't need to pass the exam to pass the course. But it was like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, I just I just went and I joined I, I joined the Navy and started doing that uh, full time. And because, okay. uh, you know, I'd met some guy that was in boot camp and he was describing to me as like, cool, sounds like a challenge. I'd I'd like a challenge. So mm-hmm. um, I went and went down to the recruiting office, said this is what I want to do. Um, I didn't have I had poor vision. I've had um, laser eye surgery since then. But because of my, my poor vision, um, I wasn't allowed to go into the officer class that I wanted to go into. So I ended up um, going into marine engineering. So uh, okay. glorified diesel mechanic. Like you have to understand ship engineering, the engineering elements of a ship, but really we fixed everything with the moving part basically. Okay. Wow.
0: <laughs> I'm sure there were plenty of parts on the ships then. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, how, how long were you, did you serve? I did a uh, two, three year stints. So I did three years. And then in that stretch is when I met the, the young lady who would become my wife and we've now been together for 17 years. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Yeah, I met her. So we ended up going back and living in Australia. I took a one year leave of absence, went back and lived in Australia with her. My wife's from Australia and uh, we got married over there and then um, came back and I did another three year stint. Um, But I came home from uh, from, you know, a a stint one day to my wife and I was like, I was gone like 280 days a year. So I was gone a lot. Mm, And this is is not really a way to have a marriage. Um, Just you know, making phone, phone, like, again, we're going back to the, I think we, we, we have a short memory nowadays, but I'm like, I remember when we had a satellite phone that you had to try to connect to in the middle of the ocean. And it's like a 20 second delay and you get like three minutes of satellite time, you know, satellite phone time a day. You basically say, Hey, are you still live? Cool. I love you. I love you too. What are you doing? Can't tell you. Okay. Bye. You know, like, like that, that was like the extent of it. And so I came home one day and I was like, look, you know what? Um, why don't, why don't we just go teach English somewhere? And, uh, she was like, okay, (laughs) it's like, okay. Was was she
0: already involved in teaching English or was she still in the, was she also serving or?
1: No, no, nothing to do with that. My, my wife's uh, um, a performer and like a children's entertainer actually. So I say I I married a clown, um, From the big comfy couch. Is that? that She, uh, so she was, she's actually trained like among other things, like as a children's clown did like, you know, children's parties and stuff like that. But she was also like a, um, kind of like did street theater um she does improv comedy as well as like stage acting as well okay. so she's she's a born so performer she's a
0: trained performing artist yeah yeah okay so
1: uh and teaching is sometimes a bit of a performance art <laughs> so <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, well, you know we both we both love travel and so we were like you know um why don't we just you know everyone saves up money and like buys a house and just like settles down and like that's just not us and so we saved up a bunch of money and said, OK, we just hopped on a plane to Puerto Vallarta and went in Mexico. And then we went inland to Guadalajara, uh, went to a school there that was like a TEFL school. So teaching English is a foreign language. Okay. So te- TESL is if you teach English in an English speaking country, teaching English is a second language tefl is teaching english as a foreign language so that's when you're an, you're a foreigner in that country teaching english so we went to a school um, did a course there and they had a sister school essentially it was like for students so it was just like a feeder program and so we okay. slotted over into this other other school so <clears throat> we're living in you know in guadalajara and guadalajara is a city of like 6 million people it's a pretty big city and it's mexico's uh, second biggest really amazing climate there it's like mm. uh, what was it 25 year round what would that be i don't know probably like in the maybe 80 so uh, 80 fahrenheit like year round and okay. wow yeah it really, cuz it's about a, it's about a mile above sea level it's very similar to to uh, Denver um and there's okay. a very large lake nearby where there's a huge expat um community as well called Lake Chapala okay. and uh, it's a really really temperate moderate climate which is fantastic um but Guadalajara also has like a suburb very wealthy suburb <laughs> where all mm. the cartel heads live yes. and So there was quite a bit of conflict between like various federal forces and the cartels. And we kind of recognized like I'm I'm clearly white. Like I'm as white as they come. I say I'm (laughs) truly Canadian. I come in two colors. What? Yeah, I I know, right? (laughs) Uh, I come in two colors, red and white that's Ah. it canadian through and through um and my wife you know she she had sort of lighter like fair colored hair it was it's it's darkened a little bit over the last 10 years but it was a little bit blonder back then and so like you know we we stood out it was obvious and that we're not locals um, and we were not really in a tourist area now we have some mexican friends they hung out with us they looked after us made sure we were safe all that kind of stuff and i really enjoyed like you know, when Mexican, like living in Mexico and the Mexicans didn't see us as a source of tourist dollars, they just saw us as like another part of the city. Mm. Incredibly hospital. Loved my, loved my experience um, living down there. Uh, and I, you know what? I have to say, like teaching like young, young adults English in Mexico was one of like probably my favorite teaching gig ever. They're really? they're so eager to learn because they recognize the value of English in terms of say going across the border. Now I would say all of my students had crossed the border illegally at least once, if not five times. Um, <laughs> That's yeah, <quite> a range. <laughs> right. But what they would do is they'd go over across the border, you know, um, work for say six months or a year, save up all their money, even working for minimum wage, save up money, go back to Mexico, mm. you know, buy a car, come back again, do another stint, ah. work for a year, save up a bunch of money, go back across the border, buy a house, mm. and because not every, contrary to popular belief, um, I, 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 actually, I don't know if it's a popular belief or not, but not every not every Mexican wants to live in the U.S. Like Yeah,
0: very true. I, I but, live in California, and I, I've actually met a lot of people in the Mexican community, and I've learned things like that, and I learned about how a lot of people actually send money back. Yeah. Regularly and then they'll go yeah. visit for three months or something mm, like that Oh, yeah. They're only out here to work.
1: Yeah. So, like... Um, but they were so enthusiastic and and they're also like musical rhythmic uh people mm. and i'm not i'm the exact opposite i'm like clumsy awkward you know kind of clunky moving <laughs> um you know my wife's the, you know like and it's i can blame it on being born premature so that actually mm. affects motor development and, and and um so i have I had a little bit of a sort of developmental delay and, and some developmental hiccups in terms of my co- my hand-eye coordination things like that mm. so Needless to say, I fit the stereotype of white guys who can't dance. Like but, it just you have the
0: passion though. The passion's oh, there, yeah. they can be recognized. So you the, know, the,
1: the, you know <laughs> I, lo- I love music, but I just it, I move rather awkwardly to it. And so they they really, I mean, they they warmed up to me, and they they tried so hard to teach me. Like they just you know, and we had we had such a good rapport. Like it was it was so much fun. So one of the things the school would do that we were teaching at is mm-hmm. every class they would they would play a song, and it was an English song, and the students would kind of get the lyrics, and they would kind of sing along, and it was an, it was a way to learn. English. English in sort of a more informal sense, and then we talk about the lyrics of the song. Now, for the students, they might only come, you know, three classes over the course of a week, so they might only hear the song three times. I was teaching eight classes a day, hearing so I was hearing this bang song every every, the song of the week forty times a week. Um, The one that the one that that, like sticks out, oh yeah. So the one that like sticks out on her head was. uh, they try to make me go to rehab, but I said, no, no, no. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> an old Amy Winos tune. And so we had, we had some oh, wow. students that are like teenagers and I'm like, I'm not sure if we should be like, because Mexico is still a fairly conservative society. And like Guadalajara is like a more, uh, and, and it's been 10 years since I've lived there. So I'm sure things have changed since then, of course, but I, we found that Mexico to be a little bit more conservative as a society, um, probably due to the Catholic influence. Mm. And so, um, and even though Guadalajara is kind of a more, more open sort of progressive place, um, to be kind of having, having songs about like, you know, drinking and doing drugs and going to rehab and stuff like that, we we're kind of like, yeah ah, you know, <laughs> do we want to explain this? Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Wow. That's, that's quite, uh, quite an experience. So how long were you out in Mexico doing mm-hmm. that and what kind of led you to wanting to leave considering how much you liked it?
1: Uh, yeah, we were there for about six months. Um, we were oh, wow. sure we're gonna we're gonna get robbed when we were living down there because you know probably by the cops. That's kind of what we thought because it did happen to some of our colleagues um, who who were also white and clearly not Mexican. Uh, yeah. One guy, you know, he got pulled over when he was in a taxi. They pulled the taxi over, got him out of the car, and said, "Hey, we found this little bag of cocaine in your pocket." And he was like, "No, you didn't." The taxi driver was like, "Shut up, you idiot!" Yes, they did. <laughs> like, wow. don't be stupid. And yeah. so basically, he had four hundred pesos in his pocket, so he just gave them four hundred pesos. And at that time, it was converting at maybe. I don't know, 15 to one. So 400 pesos, is maybe like 30 bucks or something. But mm. so. um, yeah. And, and kind of for context, like the wage that we were getting down, there was like maybe 50 pesos an hour, give or take. And so it worked at like maybe four bucks an hour kind of thing. Mm. Uh, three, three, four bucks an hour is like the wage. So, you know, 30 bucks is like a day's work. Um yeah. So, um, but th- there was like sort of an uptick in violence and then we were starting to see more and more of these black trucks rolling through these armored, armored um, trucks rolling through with the federalities and stuff. And we're like, <sighs> you know, yeah. ah, it's like, so we kind of weighed the pros and cons. And it's funny, we actually got interviewed one time by this local police station. And I, I could at that time speak reasonably decent Spanish because I love languages too. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they basically wanted us to say hey we're down here in Mexico and we're safe <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> just set up okay. some more uh, pots uh, Petsies. <laughs> yeah yeah so and you know like guadalajara is a really really neat city like historically speaking like the, and we lived in the centro historico which is like the old old like downtown mm-hmm. so there is an element of it that's kind of it kind of beautiful, beautiful. Mm-hmm. yeah um, but we lived in like a ha- this old hacienda we were paying, I think 1800 pesos a month, uh, which, you know, what's that maybe 200 bucks a month or something for rent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had like a shared kitchen, shared bathroom, that kind of thing. But I said it came complete with like bed bugs and cockroaches and, um, <laughs> you know. Like, but thankfully, my dad was an exterminator. And so we just called, Hey, what would you do? And, you know, he, he just told us, Go to the local hardware store, get this, 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 that kind of stuff. You know, here's how you kind of cut out your room to, you know, because bed bug bites, I don't know if you've ever had them, but they're like a mosquito bite, except a million times itchier. Really? Yeah. So you'll find there's two. Um, a mosquito bite, if you look carefully, you might see like uh, one bite mark where like the their needle or whatever pokes into your skin.
0: Probstice. A bed
1: bug has two. So one is where they actually inject an anesthetic tube into you and then they inject their feeding tube into you. So you don't actually feel them feeding on you in the night, but you wake up. And so I got some bites on my foot and so it just felt my foot was like a flaming ball of itch, if I could just put it that way. So I'm, I, you know, I'm wow. in a class like trying to teach English and like discreetly attempting to stomp on my foot because it was so insanely itchy. Like we we ended up getting like tensor bandages and like wrapping our feet tightly just to try to put pressure on it. So um, don't wow. get bed bug bites.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm definitely gonna keep uh, clean my ladies and gentlemen. If you're not washing your bed sheets, do so now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so things like um, di- diatomaceous earth, um, you can sprinkle that around. And when, so bed bugs can't jump, but what they can do is they can crawl up the wall and fall. Um, and you can, you can look at your mattress you can look in like the folds of your mattress for like little black dots, which is like their feces, which is, they're just kind of excreting, you know, old blood cells and things like that. So you can kind of look in there. And so we, we like hosed our mattress with rubbing alcohol as well. And then like went to work for the day. We're not going to hang out in a room after just like literally (laughs) dousing the whole thing in in rubbing alcohol. Um, and then we put like reverse duct tape around, um, the legs of the bed and we pulled the bed away from the wall so they couldn't sort of like jump onto us, um, Wow. Oh, it was,
0: I think something so small is like, I need to get up there. Let me just like, that's, that's crazy. That's one of those things that nature does that you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yes. Uh, so, but you were asked about, um, you know, in terms of why do we, we ended up leaving because, you know, I'd say we could kind of read the writing on the wall a little bit. We're like, oh, okay, you know, what, looks like, you know, things are kind of getting a little rougher here. Uh, not mm-hmm. so sure. I want to stay here, you know, kind of thing. And so we ended up applying for jobs um, in Italy and we got them. Okay. I thought my wife for sure would get it because she's like a children's entertainer. But I'm mm. like, I'm ex-military. Like, <clears throat> who's going to hire me to be a children's English teacher in Italy? Right. They, well, but they accept. Kindergarten me.
0: cop, right? So right, right,
1: about. right. <laughs> and uh, so so then we, we took off. We went to Cancun for a week. I got the the most hellish sunburn of my life. Um, mm. So, Because Guadalajara is such a moderate sort of temperate place in terms. Then we went to Cancun. And I went to swim in the ocean for, for, for a couple hours. Didn't think about it. Came back in and I was like, oh man, my skin feels a little bit sore. You know, kinda of went for a nap, woke up and my skin was like purple. It oh, was I looked wow. like an Oompa Loompa. And so, oh it was it was brutal. That must we, have
0: been, oh yeah. man. I, I've so, had severe burn in just a single location. To wake up purple must have been agonizing.
1: Yeah. And the interesting thing is it like stopped at my elbow because like my forearms, I've been wearing t-shirts all the time. So my forearms had been like exposed to the sun and like it stopped at my neck as well. So like my neck and face didn't get burned, but everywhere, like my torso, it looked like I was wearing a purple t-shirt essentially. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then of course it starts to blister. So we flew from like Cancun to New York and we're hanging out in New York for a bit. And I had to, I had to like, uh, stuff, Tissues up my sleeves of my shirt and put rubber bands around it because these blisters are weeping now. And I don't want, oh, I didn't want, like, it was awkward to have them like dripping, but you right, don't want right. to burst them because you don't want them to get infected. So I'm like covered in weeping blisters. And then, and then the next stage is then all the skin starts to flake and dry off. And so imagine standing up and having like a chest full of dandruff, like the size of cornflakes falling off and try to like wow. brush that off in public. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it like. Yeah. So we ended up flying to um, Iceland. And and if you haven't been to Iceland, I highly, highly recommend it. Such a cool country Um, over
0: there. It looks beautiful.
1: Oh yeah. One of the safest countries in the world. Like we hitchhiked around there. Um, but they have this, this blue lagoon, which is really famous. Like it's cause it's between the airport in the city called Keflavik and the main city called Reykjavik where like 80% of their population lives. Mm-hmm. And so there's this blue lagoon. So we we went to the blue lagoon and they have this, this white silica mud that you rub on your skin. That's supposed to be good for your skin. So I, I was literally caking my skin in this stuff being like, please just do something for my poor, you know, torso because I've been mm-hmm. sleeping in a chair. Trying not to like oh, lean man. on anything, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and Perfect. so then then we end up going to to the UK and then heading over to uh, heading over to Italy to kind of start work there. Mm. So, uh, how
0: long were you over there?
1: We we spent probably we would have got there in like mid twenty eleven because we left in twenty ten. Uh, oh actually no sorry it would have been like mid 2010 we got over there because um, yeah we were sick we were like january to to june in mexico and then we went okay. over to, to to europe and then we were in italy for uh until september and then we went over to see my brother who was living in turkey at the time okay and from there we ended up getting job offers in poland and we would have never thought to go to poland but we got this job offers so like mm, does it sound legit so you've been trotting
0: to different countries with Well, Italian and Spanish is relatively similar, but different languages. How was that? Because I know you said you enjoyed it, but do you (laughs) know many languages? Or was that just like, we're going to figure it out?
1: It was, was, let's figure it out as we go. Now, I'd like to say, I think I pick up languages pretty good. Now, Mm. I did have, when I was at university, prior to knowing my wife, I did have a, a Mexican girlfriend. Uh, like from Monterrey in Mexico and uh, so it's fu- that's a funny story too so uh, we're, we're going to go back just a little bit here back okay. in the time um, but I, here I'm at university and I decided I, I want to take Spanish as an elective because um, we learned French in school normally and it's like I want to take Spanish it's more widely spoken around the world I want to go to South America I think Spanish is way more useful than French and we, we didn't like the Quebecois back then you know the, the French speaking now I, I don't mind them but you know back then we had, to, <laughs> we had you know the, the, this sort of rival going between English and French speakers in Canada but so i they had the, my university offered this um, this program where you get paired up with a native language speaker so like someone from another country gets paired up with you like i wanted to learn spanish so they paired me up with a spanish speaker hmm. well in my application i said hey i'd like to be paired with like a hot girl <laughs> and they're like no problem uh, poppy and i was like i was like for sure they're totally not they're they're not they're going to like reject my application and everything <laughs> the exact opposite they paired me up with a very attractive uh mexican girl and uh we actually ended up dating for for a little while there uh so so that helped my spanish a little bit uh you know, it's
0: uh, a good way to learn, mas palabras. yeah. <laughs>
1: so, so it was, uh, yeah, that that wasn't a relationship that was meant to be. Um, it was just kind of, uh, you know, um, meant to experience, yeah. She, she was a little bit loco as well, and she had tried yeah. to teach me salsa too. And it was actually at a salsa, like a salsa club that you know, she invited me to. And it was like Valentine's Day and she dragged me in the corner and just started making out with me. And I was I was a little bit taken aback because like Mexican, at least my experience, because there was there was a whole cohort of like Mexican students at our university. And so they were all hanging out together. And so I kind of observed, I guess, like, wow, like these Mexican girls are really forward compared to. like more reserved uh, you know canadian girls where it's like mm. a little bit more like she didn't even like <laughs> she, there there was like no discussion about it she just dragged me into a corner and uh, and started <laughs> with me i was like okay i mean i was like 20 21 years old at the time so i'm like yeah okay whatever i'll uh, i'm not complaining <laughs> but i right. you know yeah yeah i i didn't expect it to sort of play out like that but uh yeah so it was uh, that that was a bit of fun there um but uh, you know that was, that, one, that one didn't last so anyway so that's how i <laughs> Canadian, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah,
0: yeah. So, um, you went out to Italy and then yeah, you went yeah. out to Poland. And yeah. I'm noticing that these are short jobs. Are were you like working in like a contract kind of fashion or was it just you were looking for the jobs and because you had that wanderlust, you wanted to keep uh, going somewhere yeah. else?
1: Well, I mean, we joke people say, Well, how did you manage to finance like your travels? And I say, Oh, we sold drugs to kids, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and teaching English was a great, great pipeline to them, you know. (laughs) Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm kidding, don't do that. I didn't do that. Okay. It was a joke of whatever century. We we don't condone selling drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No and we don't come doing pharmaceutical selling to children either. But you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well we'll not we don't want to get censored here though. So yeah, I exactly. to right the show hosting.
0: I'll get in trouble if we get censored. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> uh so well, Italy we were there kind of for the for the summer, like uh part of July and, and August. And then we went over to Turkey and we were there for like a little bit before. It was kind of like mid September where we had went went over to Poland. Okay. And uh you know, we we, didn't, we couldn't even probably pick Poland on a map to be truthful, and we didn't really have any like great desire to go there. But it was a job offer. We're like, mm, okay, it's kind of in central Central Europe, and we could use as like a travel hub to travel around Europe. So we stayed there for, for a year. Now, okay. Poland is a totally different story than Mexico. Um, yeah, where we're is. in Mexico, like everybody is like warm and hospitable and friendly and like excitable oh, and just social. And Poland was like ice cold. Like it was, it was like a shock, you know, like Canadians are a little bit reserved and we're polite and whatever. Poland was like, (laughs) like they knew, like they knew we were Polish.
0: Right. And especially like as Mexicans have their tumultuous culture that they're dealing with, but they also still maintain what they're known for. Poland fairly recently in their history was rocked in a terrible situation that generationally, I would still feel kind of cold as well, especially when winter didn't go anywhere. They still got to deal with that.
1: Uh, Yeah. The the thing with Poland is, um, so I read this book written by an author, James, I can't think of his last name. I want to say James Michener, but I might have it wrong, but it it actually covers Polish history from about 900 AD to 1980. So it covers about a thousand years of Polish history. Yeah. Now it was written as a fictional story, but a fictional story woven into actual history. So it gives you, it's, it's, you know, and so it gave me this understanding of Polish culture, which actually I really kind of grew to, to have at least a degree of appreciation for it, like their history. Hmm. So in, in, they saved Europe twice, actually. So in the 1600s, for example, um, the, the Sultan, uh, like the Ottoman Empire was on the march and the Sultan, I can't think of his name, but anyways, he sent his general out to, to go and conquer Europe. And Hmm. so the, the, Um, and, and the Ottoman armies, the, they were, they were a lot different than the European armies. The European armies were like these heavily armored, like big horses, big, heavily armored, you know, tanks of guys kind of thing. And the Ottoman army was like, they were a lot more lightweight and agile and nimble. Um, they were pretty good archers and horseback. And so they would do things like fight a battle of attrition where they just pick you off and pick you off and pick you off. And they've never, they were really frustrating to fight with. And, uh, so, so they, they got all the way to the gates of Vienna and the emperor of Vienna fell away like a little girl and was like, ah, <laughs> you know, and this is, this yeah. is one of the, the parts of history that Poland is like quite proud of. They had this very famed, um, cavalry unit called the winged Hussars and they're this elite cavalry unit. And, uh, they, they would like decorate their armor with like Eagle feathers and things like that. And, uh, it said that, but I I, I don't know if this has actually ever been verified. But they they would put eagle feathers in their armor so that when they would hunch over their horses and do a charge, it would create like a whistling kind of screaming sound, and it would hmm. it would yeah. So with about 300 soldiers, they were up against like 10,000 of these these Turks, and uh, and they smashed them in in a totally unexpected fashion to and enforce them to retreat. But then wow. the Emperor of Vienna comes running back and goes, "I saved the city. Get the heck out of here," kind of thing. And so the Poles never really got an appreciation for it. Now, here's mm-hmm. a part that gets missed in this story. 25 years earlier, the Swedes had come down from the north and decimated 40% of the Polish population. So at that time, Poland's population was around 10 million and they killed 4 million Poles. Wow. And there was a deluge. Um, and then the, and the Swedes left. I'm like, you jerks. You come down, and like, you know, wipe out like 4 million of them and then you leave. You know, yeah. and then tw- 25 years later, because it was a, it was a conflict between uh, sort of like because Poland is Catholic. Right. So it's very interesting. We went from like Mexico to Italy to Poland. We went from like one Catholic country to another Catholic country to another one and yeah. totally different versions of Catholicism as well. So, you know, the Swedes were like Lutheran and and uh, I don't know, not Orthodox, but anyways, they were uh, Protestant. Sorry. Mm-hmm. and so you know there was battles between like cat- catholics and protestants and things like that so they came down and they they, you know 25 years earlier they, they wiped out poland but then hey when islam's on the march it's like hey we all us christians stop fighting with each other we're going to come together against a common enemy here you know mm-hmm. poland please help us we're getting we're getting our butts whooped by the ottoman empire and it's funny my brother <laughs> in, my brother lives in turkey now but uh, it, um, <laughs> yeah uh, so th- that was one of the times um, but then poland got wiped off the map for 123 years and few people know this but well, I, I don't know how, how much taught in history over here, but mm. like the Prussian Empire, which is pre-Germany, took a mm. part of it. The Austro-Hungarian Empire took like a mm. south and then the Russian sort of federation yeah. took like a third of it as well. And so Polish language is outlawed. There's Polish patriots that fled underground. They kept the language alive by going to foreign countries. And, and you know, like Chopin, this French composer mm. is actually Chopina. He's a Polish. He's a Pole. Um, really? Yeah. I didn't yeah. Know that. Yeah, those dang, those dang Frenchies—they take credit for Chopin. Why is this, you (laughs) French? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and then like Copernicus is actually Mikołaj Kopernik. He's Polish as well. You know, if there's one
0: thing I can tell you about these last two years, the inaccuracy of information in history has been (laughs) coming blatantly obvious because it's like, oh, you didn't know? Like, of course. That's yeah. why everybody thinks French fries are from France because we just assume. It no, the nothing first to do with France.
1: France. Greece. Yeah. See, but that was, that was we, a terrible. But it's an American food. No,
0: that was actually terrible a
1: terrible, dad, terrible dad joke. I just slipped that one in under the radar. Like, <laughs> oh you know, I,
0: shit! You know what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow! And that was
0: caught on live. That got me on live. You saw it here, folks. Man, I guess it wasn't that bad because it got me. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and then so so Poland had this this history; they weren't on the map, uh, and then of course, um, uh, World War One happens, mm-hmm. and after it, 1919. Now the Russian army's on the march. And sort of this, this communistic force is heading towards Europe and they're actually forming this pincher movement around Poland and they vastly outnumber the poles and everyone's just expecting Poland to fall. And then Germany's next in line and Germany's just been battered by world war one and just ripe. And it's like, communism's going to take over Europe. Nobody expected the poles to fight back way harder than they thought. And I'm like, this is kind of weird timing, given what's taking place in Ukraine right now. But anyways, the poles fought with their backs against the wall, incredibly hard and beat back the Russians and the Russian infantry had to leave basically led to retreat. Hmm. And so now, I mean, now it's a different situation. I'm not sure I want to dive into that cauldron either, but um, um, back then
0: winter was a strategic advantage. Now it doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah. So they, they, they saved Europe from, from the Ottoman empire and Islam, if you want to say they got saved from that. And then they saved Europe from Um, the march of communism as well and then they get but the problem is poland's a flat country there's there's like a border of mountains in the south and the rest of it's flat and so you got germany to the west russia to the east you get rolled over multiple times in your history like no wonder they're standoffish and cold because they've been like you know yeah there's
0: they don't really have good reason to trust outsiders
1: yeah yeah so so learning polish history is fantastic now learning the polish language on the other hand oh my gosh so in Mexico, I'll just contrast this. In Mexico, mm. my, like my Spanish wasn't perfect, but I could function. You know, sometimes I confuse por and para, but, you know, I could, I could function. And uh, I had a reasonable degree of understanding because when you hear it all the time, eventually your brain starts to tune into it and, and so on. And mm. it would be funny when we go to shops and they would try to rip us off because, you know, clearly we're not Mexican. <laughs> and they were like, hey, I live here. <laughs> nice try. Right. 10 pesos, not face was, not 100. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, I can read too. <laughs> right? <laughs> But in Poland, so but but Mexicans were they were so encouraging when we tried to learn the language. You know, they're they they just they get excited about it. Yeah, you know, keep going, keep going. Come talk to my grandma. You know, and all of this. Right, right. You know, and, and so that's what I loved. But I loved like the warmth of their culture. You clearly, can, and I mean, I I love Mexican food as well. So, but uh, so Poland, complete opposite. Like they're not used to people trying to learn their language. And so the way that the Soviet Union divvied up Eastern Europe was, if you're Polish, you live in Poland. If you're Ukrainian, you live in Ukraine and so on. And so the very homogenous populations, they're not used to foreigners coming in and who the heck wants to learn Polish? Why would you ever learn Polish? Except that you were born in Poland or you live in Chicago, which has the largest Polish population outside of Poland. That's so that
0: delicious Polish dog. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah. So I was trying to learn Polish and it's a hard language. Like it is, it is a phonetic language, and it's written using our alphabet, the, the Latin alphabet, and they did that because they're a Catholic country, but they should have uh, used the Cyrillic alphabet, which is the one that say Russian, Ukrainian, yeah, Bulgarian. I
0: actually thought it was Cyrillic.
1: No, but they use Z in a similar fashion to how we use um, H, and they have uh, a lot more sort of, they call it like a whispering language, like, uh, you know, and okay. it's like, it's, or, you know, if I was to count to 10, like, no, it's like the, you know, like it's, it's like a, it's almost like you're shushing your words. Mm-hmm. Like there's
0: a and shush behind it.
1: The, the way that it works grammatically is different than English. So in English, we have like subject, object, verb, like I, th- you know, or subject for ver- whatever it is I threw that ball, subject, verb, object, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I taught English and I, you'd think I know this stuff, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But in Polish, it's not really the order of words that matters. And it's really like kind of this mind bending concept. If you didn't learn to speak Polish, what it is, is they have they have this grammatical thing called um, off. Oh, I can't remember. It's like the endings um, of their word changes depending on the function of the word. So let the, say their noun cases or declensions is the term like anybody cares. There's no test on this, but it's, they're called declensions. Right. So seven possible so one's called nominative, for example, and that's like the generic version. Dative mm. might indicate a time. Locative would indicate uh, a location and so on. Right. And so the function of the word tells you like, so like, and then you have three genders, male, female, neutral, and then singular and plural. So you have 35 possible endings for every word, depending on the function of the word. Yeah. You try to try to wrap your head around that one. <laughs> and so... They 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 always knew I wasn't Polish just because they said it's your demeanor. Clearly, you're not Polish. Right?
0: <laughs> you, you're intimidated by this, so obviously
1: you're not. Yeah, from here. You, you smile. <laughs> you are not Polish because you smiled in public. You know, I'm like I'm, I'm like your average friendly Canadian who's like really trusting. Like, hey, everybody, it's so nice to be here in Poland. They're like,
0: why isn't everybody smiling? Eh. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> so so I remember like the first time, like just trying to buy um uh, bus tickets. And a really simple transaction. And uh, it's, it's like, uh, bywette, op and I, I, you know, that's uh, not great, but I mean, uh, 10 years later, I can still remember some of these phrases, which is pretty good. Yeah. But the ticket lady was like, I don't understand. And I was like, look at my phrase book. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I said it the way the phrase book says, bywette, you know, <laughs> and, and she was just like, don't understand. So, it was like you had to get it perfect phonetically for them to mm-hmm. say, I understand what you're trying to say, because they're not used to somebody screwing up their language. In English, you know, mm-hmm. you picture like somebody from India talking to someone from Scotland, you know, talking to someone from, you know, uh, Texas. Okay. You know, uh, th- we're used to hearing English spoken in so many different like inflections and dialects or, you know, so bring, bring, bring an Asian person into this con- so you get four different people from different parts of the world speaking English with their own individual accents and we can all kind of figure it out, you know, Ach, laddie, uh you know, I'll take to beer's place, you know, and, and I, I, I know what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah, That's a bit something. more Irish there. Hey laddie. You know, um, yeah. but then he gets some. Hey y'all, you know, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, you know, the 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 different,
0: says, there was actually a gentleman who came into my job who was French, mm-hmm. uh, And I understood every word he said except the last word. He's like, hello, I am looking for a samba. And I'm like, a samba? A samba? (laughs) And then I thought about a sound bar. Yay, samba. And I'm like, okay, so that's the the bar. That's how they speak their language being caught onto English, which we don't make that sound, which is where a lot of the accent comes from is because... I guess it would be phonetically, I'm not exactly, right, so mm-hmm. tonally, it's not the same thing. It's not coming from the same place and it's not coming from the same part of the brain. Sometimes it <laughs> yeah, seems yeah, like yeah. because Polish sounds much more akin to like a traditional Chinese or like a uh, Cantonese, yeah. I believe, because of how specific in the tone need to be because if you change that tone and the way you say it it's going to change the entire word or the intention yeah. of the
1: word well you know in one sense i would say it's probably almost as hard as learning mandarin um actually go, mandarin. i think cantonese is probably more difficult because cantonese has nine like uh nine tones versus mandarin which only has four apparently so i, I had a, oh, a roommate man. from singapore and yeah you could you know one one word said with one tone could mean hello, and the other one could mean f you, you know. Mm, <laughs> and it's exactly. like, and you just switch the tone. But um, in Polish, it's it's not that they necessarily have tones; it's that if you don't say it the exact correct way, they say I don't understand. Mm. And so it was it was a really and y- y- you know a lot of them they they understand some English, and and of course if you go to the big the bigger cities, they they do speak some English and whatnot, mm. but they won't speak it because in their head they're like I don't speak it perfectly, so I won't speak it. Mm. So now I try to teach people in this capacity.
0: Yeah, so so each time you were teaching English as a second uh, as a foreign language, mm-hmm. in each yeah. of these countries.
1: Yeah. So I went from in Mexico where I'm singing Amy Winehouse and dancing with my class and they're laughing at my stupid dance moves to, you know, trying to teach rowdy children in Italy and being like a big, tall, like, you know, physical imposing presence. Like Italian children are the worst behaved children in the world. They're they're insane. They're out of control. And so I just walked <laughs> you know, and I, 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 I saw just, the Godfather. He just watched his yeah. grandpa die and just poisoned. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I would walk in there all intimidating. And it's funny because we'd have like these these like female um, like teachers that would come in and we're we're running English camps, not English classes, but more like Mm -hmm. English camps that have some classroom component to it. And they'd be like, "Oh my gosh, they're so cute!" La da 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 da. I'm like, "No, they're not. They're little monsters." You just wait. <laughs> and and so I'd walk in there. I wouldn't crack a smile. And I would, you know, so I could. And and Italy still has like a, you know, they they really sort of distinguish between masculine and feminine. Like, and men and their whole. It's it's a bit silly when you look at it from the outside. But the whole like machismo thing and all this, you know, you get this like fifty year old sort of overweight, paunchy, balding Italian guy, you know, grabbing his crotch, being like, "Hey, baby," you know, <laughs> trying to talk to these young drunk American girls, being you know in the bar or something. And it's like, yeah, you're fifty two, bald and with a paunch on you you know she's like 19 and you know with some husky you know guy over mm-hmm. here like no interest fella but they seem to have no you know no, no it's, no it's kind of fun you know so, I'm not yeah go ahead so
0: i i know we've just been talking a lot here and we haven't actually gotten to what you do oh, yeah you've had quite <laughs> the fascinating life so far but i wanted to oh, kind yeah, of yeah. get up to that point and now uh after Poland, was that when you went into Africa? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. just to kind of cap whoa, whoa, recap whoa. on it for people, just because I know there's other interviews there, and I kind of want to let you talk about your podcast a little bit and such. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong at any points here, but uh, you had gone out there. You were there for a while teaching English as well. And then um, I actually... I cannot recall the context of why, but I know that you became under attack after a while. Were you becoming under attack because of the fact that you were teaching English and that just was or was it entirely random?
1: Uh, Sort of the, the, remember that skin tone? Yes. Um, Yeah. Well, in South Africa, I stand out even more. Oh, okay. See that detail I had missed.
0: It was South Mm. Africa specifically.
1: Yeah. Now, I mean, uh, you know, my best friend is Haitian, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. you know, it's funny. He grew up in Canada. He was adopted and grew up in Canada, and grew up driving pickup trucks and listening to country music. You know. <laughs> but, but anyways, uh, he's like uncle to my kids. But anyway, so I'm in South Africa, and we're we're actually teaching underprivileged youth life skills to help improve their employability, like simple things like communication, okay. writing resumes, and writing cover letters, and how to interview, and what service looks like, and we're preparing them for work in hospitality. So okay. it was a slightly different um, um, job than teaching English, but we were out on a nature reserve and it was kind of out there. And I don't know what we have for time on the clock here, but i you know, I, I,
0: you know, honestly, as if you have the time, we have the time to talk as well. All, let's um, roll,
1: man because yeah. life gets really kind of interesting here because it's about 10 years ago now and like the last 10 years of my life have been you know well th- those 10 years that the earlier stretch was like a lot of fun this mm-hmm. one got a little bit more messy um mm-hmm. so i got jumped by four guys at night and they tried to beat me to death and it was very much connected to uh this old lack of melanin in my skin um mm-hmm. now it had nothing to do with me the person they didn't know who i was um but they jumped me out on this reserve here, like at night when I was walking back to, the, to my instructor's cabin, they've been hiding in the bushes, like waiting. And I'm really grateful it was me that was walking back to the cabin and not my wife, because it probably would have been a different outcome had they jumped her. And so um, and these guys, they, they um, you know, they, they smashed me over the head with the bricks like they, you know, caught me off guard. It was, you know, I remember like screaming for help. Um, and I, I, what I remember the most the thing that sticks out in my head is this guy, I had a shirt similar to this, like a collared shirt. Cause I like golf shirts and he mm. grabbed this part of my shirt and he like looked me right in the eye with a big smile on his face as he's swinging this brick at my head and just said, Shh. Oh, and nice. it was, it was so like soul disturbing, mm. like this with violent intention and enjoying his violence that he was inflicting on me. And and here I was like working for an NGO for like a stipend to help mm-hmm. underprivileged youth. Not that I'm like some kind of savior or anything. I don't mean that, but I just mean here we are in the country, kind of almost voluntarily working with people to try and help them better their lives. And this guy was just smiling he as he's smashing me over the head with a brick, kind of thing. So mm. it was it was a pretty intense situation, and uh, kind of the fallout from that. Well, it was, uh, you know, at first it was like, they're not going to win, you know, like, like we we got, we got trapped in the building with our students and our students were just as like, you know, they weren't attacked necessarily, but we were kind of held hostage in this building. These guys are trying to smash down the doors. We didn't know how many were out there because they often travel in gangs. And uh, it was so interesting because so South Africa is is very diverse, Um, Mm. you know, so the, the white um, population is only about Maybe it's like 7%. So it's not a lot. People seem to think there's a lot of white. There's not a lot. It's about 80% black. There's about 10, I want to say 10% colored, which is like mixed race. Mm. And then there's about 7% white, which is kind of split half and half between English and Afrikaans. And then you have about 3% South Asian. So that's like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so on. Mm. But within the black community in South Africa, this is not a homogenous group. There is like eight different major ethnic tribes within South Africa. And then there's also like uh, others who come from other regions, let's say for example, like Nigerians and so on. Mm. And there's a lot of in inter tribal conflict and it's not pleasant because there's a lot of cultural differences between these different ethnic groups. So they have different linguistic, um, different languages. They have different um, like cultural beliefs. They Mm. all have some kind of rite of passage from like boyhood to manhood, from girlhood to womanhood and so on, but they're different from each other. And so they, um, they they are often in conflict with each other because, like, my culture is superior to yours. And it's a real insult to call someone a boy if they've been through whatever ritual they have in their culture to take you to manhood and so on. Mm. And, uh, like, the Zulu folks, they're out on the East Coast uh, more. Um, the colored are more out in the West Coast, in, like Cape Town area. But uh, the Zulu folks, they're, like, the big aggressive like they were a very warlike people throughout history shaka zulu is a very famous warrior um mm-hmm. you know what doesn't get talked about is they they are not indigenous to that area either there's actually a uh, san Bushmen were like these really small almost not quite pygmy but really small people that were really really skilled trackers and they were like spirit trackers and you know really quite a fascinating culture well they hmm. were almost they were almost completely annihilated by the zulus um in a genocide but i mean this is i don't know you know long before Like this is a few hundred years ago, but it really doesn't get talked about, right? Um, So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ethnic tension there as well. Um, The way that people get brought together is if you can create division between the blacks and the whites, primarily. That's where you create even more sort of political tension, that sort of thing. Um, But as a country, it's just it's it's really it's been trapped in a cycle of violence for a very long time, and it's not exclusively. Um, you know, but you know, black to white or things like that. Like, it's there's a lot of inter ethnic violence as well. So it's it's mm-hmm. and it's really tragic because, like, again, a lot of South African people, beautiful people, like, oh man, like amazing singers and dancers, like our students mm-hmm. that we would be teaching. Like, and and again, they would just love this white guy trying to dance. They would just laugh their heads <laughs> off. Like, they weren't making fun of me. they were just they thought it was the funniest thing though, this guy trying to dance. And they tried to teach me, they're really gracious about it, you know, like. If you If you were to remove the violent aspect of the society and it, it's a lot of them are victims of violence, and then mm. violence perpetuates violence and so on. And right. violence can just, is, is incredibly common. Um, one in, one in two women have been raped and one in four have been gang raped. like these are the sorts of things that don't get talked about down there. It's, it's so like it's, it's almost like overwhelming to like learn about these things. And a very yeah. significant portion of the population has AIDS. It doesn't get talked about, but it's understood quietly that a lot of the population does however there's also quite an element of promiscuity cultural promiscuity and if you don't talk about it and so on so they had to have these big campaigns even trying to educate people about it and so on like so there's there's all these complex layers to this culture and then you mm-hmm. think about like yes the colonial countries in one sense did come down and kind of exploit and and and, and so on uh, it, it, but it's like so you you throw mm-hmm. all of that together in this melting pot and you're going to so, get like this like this country filled with unrest, essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like almost hard to find its identity. So I look back and I observe and it's really, really fascinating um, in a sense. But so anyways, all that's just a little bit of backstory. Now, South Africa is gorgeous. It's beautiful, beautiful Mm -hmm. coastline, beautiful beaches, incredible wildlife, you know, like there's, there's, and and that's why I think it's a real tragedy. It's also resource rich. So you have this beautiful, Mm -hmm. naturally beautiful resource rich country that, that is probably the most prosperous or wealthy country in the African continent.
0: Yeah, there's been a recent uh, political uh, turmoil in that regard. Been been hush-hush on the news, but uh, there's been a lot going on in regards to those resources.
1: Yeah, I'm willing to bet there's one, uh, what was his name? Because when we were there, he was the leader of the youth wing of the ANC or the African National Congress. So that's historically the the Black People's Party is the African National Congress. Mm. Then you have the democratic party which interesting was led by a jewish lady or was at the time that we were down there out in the western cape and the african national congress hated that this lady was was running this democratic party because she was doing a really good job of it like mm-hmm. and and it, people you know like didn't matter what color you were she was doing a good job the african national congress is very corrupt and but if people tried to call out the corruption they would play like the raise card they would get ang- you know and stuff like that like it's just but it was a lot of like rigged tenders and you know that sort of like corporate crony, uh, crony capitalism mm. kind of thing. And uh, so the average like black folks in South Africa really suffered under this. But then those political elite, because make no mistake, there's an elite wealthy class of black folks in South Africa that, that some have come by it honestly, but many have come by it through political corruption. Mm. They'll point a finger at someone else to turn away from the fact that they have 16 houses in the richest district in Johannesburg. And be like, oh, you know, uh, it just, you know, it just happens. I'm really good with money. And it's like, right, uh, 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 right. yeah. So you know, and it's weird because I'm like in almost every political conflict, doesn't matter like where in the world it is, you see like an elite class of people that just take advantage of and, and control and and try to control the population and extract wealth from like this, you know, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother kettle of fish as well. But <laughs> yes, anyway, so all of this to say South Africa is a really beautiful country it's it's almost like a tortured country if we could put it that way because there's so many layers and so much complexity to Mm. to its history um and so it's it's a tragedy because it's again it's so beautiful and and when when the people aren't trying to you know when you're not (laughs) having violence inflicted on you when you're able to just have civil normal interactions they're beautiful people down there you know again Uh, and and they want to be hospitable. And like when, when like my students were so distraught that we were attacked because they really enjoyed us, you know, they, they didn't care about our skin color. They were happy that we were there trying to help them. Like some of them told them that they loved us and we're like, man, I wonder if they've ever told, like, it sounds weird, but like, I wonder if they ever told a white person before they loved them because, but we weren't South African, pardon me. So we didn't play a role in their minds. We didn't play a role in the oppression of them because we came from somewhere else in the world kind of thing. Mm. So, um, you know when we stayed down there after that was only one incident of about 13 that happened in the in the in the five or six months we lived down there that was the most violent one but there comes a point where it's like you can't take it anymore it's uh, you know we were probably on the verge of some kind of like mental breakdown like I was literally I was so sick of our house being broken into and and and, and getting robbed like our stuff stolen all the time I was ready to set traps and inflict violence on people and of course remember I'm Oh, I was actually
0: curious about that when you had mentioned that in an interview, I was like, he's ex-military. I was wondering, like, did that kind of start to get kicked back in? I was like, look, I don't want to, but at this point, I I do remember some things and I will just yeah. end this. But it- I, I imagine at the same time, you understood that that would mean escalation more likely than likely. Uh,
1: yeah. You know, it's interesting because in the military, you actually try to de-escalate things as much as possible. Generally, Well, at least in the Canadian military. I can't speak for the American military. Uh, from
0: what I've been told from my friends of mine that are vendors and such, that is what you're supposed to do.
1: Yes. is to try supposed to de-escalate to. the
0: situation. You're supposed to.
1: <laughs> so I knew that like when I got to the place that I was having thoughts of inflicting violence on people, that I was like, this isn't who I am. This is not my character like I have to get out of here because one way or another situations end badly, whether it ends badly on my end or on someone else's end. And I really wouldn't want to live with myself, you know, in the moment, in a moment of rage. It's it's um, like shocking what a human being can do. But I would know that my life would be filled with regret if I was to inflict violence on another human being. I'm not a, I'm not a violent person. I'm a I'm a I'm a huggy teddy bear, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, so even if so, I you know, we we knew we had to get out of there. And and we went back to Australia, you know, lived over there for a bit, you know, decompressed psychologically, mentally, emotionally. And and I kind of went into this period of like now I'm dealing with PTSD, right? You go through trauma and then you layer a bunch of other micro traumas on top of the big T trauma and 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 then and be and totally unequipped to deal with it, like emotionally, mentally, just who who tells you? Where on earth do you learn about how to deal with trauma? Well, yeah. you, you kind of figure it out when you have no other choice, when your head's just filled with all of these like um well raging thoughts um traumatic thoughts anxious thoughts like just wild mood swings and you Mm -hmm. know and there's a part of your brain going what the hell is going on and is there a way out of this like is this going to be my life for the rest of my life like it's Mm -hmm. you know so i hit some pretty low points in there as well because i'm like i don't know how to escape from my own head and i don't want these thoughts in my head but they just keep coming in and keep coming in so you know, I went through a really kind of a, a dark period in my life. And I really got to give a shout out to my wife because, you know, I uh, we, said so we've been together for 17 years. She's been with me when I was, you know, fit and getting ready for boot camp and just kind of a young, cocky idiot. You know, she's been with me when I'm like a traumatized, I, I gained 120 pounds, like traumatized, morbidly obese guy, just struggling to even find myself who I was after going through all of this, you know, I could put a, I could put a mask on, I could put a shell on, I could operate in public, but on the inside I was really tortured and, Mm. and, and withdrawn. And like, it was just a really, really difficult place to be mentally. And, and again, we think back, you know, historically men don't talk about this. We don't talk about mental and emotional health. We don't, we don't want to show weakness. And, and Mm. uh, so I grappled with all of these things and sort of what I felt like it meant to be a man and not wanting to be weak. But, you know, there came a point in about mid 2016, I want to say so going back about six more years So sort of halfway between now and when that incident happened to me and uh, I was just, I was getting multiple panic attacks a day and it was just crippling me. Like it was hard to function. And I was like, I, I just, you know, I can't keep doing this. Um, And so my doctor, you know, he said like, we can give you a medication cause I'd really, really tried not to like use medications. I I wanted to, I I thought maybe I could, you know, somehow conquer this naturally or something like that.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: so, Anyways, he, he, he tried me on a medication, but it made me feel like a zombie. And it actually, I mean, I'm glad we tried it. And this is no knock on anybody who uses medication to mental uh, to manage their mental health at all. Um, mm. But I felt that I would rather go through a 45-minute panic episode than 12 hours of feeling like a zombie and knowing there's no escape from it until that medication wears off.
0: Mm. And escape, you essentially become a prisoner of your own body.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and, and describing it, I look back now from where I am now, like mentally and emotionally, I'm in a very good place. I've got help. And, and it really inspires the work that I do now. And I wouldn't take these experiences out of my past because I really had to go that on the base that journey through hell in a sense, hell on earth, hell internally, hell in my mind. And, and I wouldn't be able to understand people the way that I do now, the way that I work with people now, except that I had to go through this lived experience myself. That was just, you know, life-changing and, you know, and then, of course, just to throw something else in the mix, um, I also had a business with a business partner who was a narcissist and a sociopath, like he's a pathological liar. And I didn't know how to look for that in people because nobody talked about it, right? Mm. And I got taken advantage of. And that when that business collapsed, I lost you know, my life savings and a lot of money that I invested in this business and had to walk away with just a mountain of debt, mm. you know? And just, just like when I was getting, you know, into a good place with my mental health and whump, this all comes crashing down, you know, I'm thinking this is going back what four years now. Um, mm. You know, and then I got to go to my wife and be like, uh, that business, we thought we were building this, you know, this sort of like, uh, you know, productive asset. We thought we were developing all of this. It was all a shell. It was, I was being taken advantage of. It was crooked accounting, all this kind of stuff. And whump, this thing collapses and I got nothing. I'm like you know, and there's a few times in that experience or, or, or in this stretch where, you know, I said to my wife, you can go back to Australia. You don't have to be stuck here, trapped with me, you know, trapped in all of this. This isn't what you signed up for and so on. And again, shout out to her, man, because she was like, I'm not leaving you. Like we're in this, we're in this. When I, when I signed that dotted line and, and we made our vows and we said till death do us part and I am not leaving this. And so, you know, I'm fiercely loyal to my wife uh, because in, in like you know, she's seen me like in the worst of things and would not leave me, even though mm. I offered her a way out. She refused because she knows who I am. She she mm. like she said to me, like, uh, I, I knew that you were always in there. I just I didn't know how to help you get out kind of thing. Mm. So. So
0: would you say that uh, your ability to actually get to a place where you're in a healthier mental state, able to assess things healthier came from your retrospective analyzation of traumas you had been through and realizing that you had not actually addressed them, you've just gone past them. And yeah. those weights were, were what was actually holding you back. And mm-hmm. by going and addressing them, like uh, in the interview, you decided that even though you were never gonna meet them, you forgave those men. Yeah. Was, was that kind of what helped you kind of catalyze a whole bunch of different ones or was that really just kind of the main thing that was holding you down or was that just you've
1: heard uh, me tell tell some of my story before, because, you know, I, I say forgiving those men, I never saw them again, but forgiving them for what they did to me was one of the best things I could have ever done. And, and people would wonder like, are you nuts? How could you forgive someone who happily would have killed you? Mm -hmm. And I really, you know, I, I really said, well, one, I got tired of the rage. I just it's so draining to be angry all the time or to have flashes of anger, uh, you know, impulses, uh, you know, like it, it just this emotional roller coaster. It's just exhausting. And I realized that forgiveness wasn't about absolving them for what they did. It wasn't about saying, well, hey, it was no big deal, but it was about setting myself free. And so I, I what I would do is I would when I, when I would feel this like rage coming up in me and when I would have these angry and violent kind of thoughts and ruminations and um I would then try to cultivate a sense of compassion for these men. And so I, I would really ask the question what happened to them in their life that got them to this place where they thought this was an appropriate course of action. Mm. How did they get here? And again, it's not it's not a get out of jail free card. It's not to say their behavior was acceptable because they had a hard past, but mm-hmm. it was to say, if I could at least cultivate a level of understanding for them. And how they got there, I can at least forgive them. Because I, you know, call me naively optimistic, but I really don't believe people are necessarily born with a desire to inflict, you know, harm and violence and murder on other people.
0: I, I agree with you. And I also agree that understanding does not mean condoning. Um, yeah. I think people use that as an excuse to not go through the exercises that it requires of oneself in order to get to that place. Because we think yeah. it's just a choice, it's not that easy you have to have the capacity to have that kind of love within you, to have that kind of forgiveness. And people don't even realize love is a multi-tiered thing outside of romance. And you need to have love for your fellow man. It's that love for your fellow man. And understanding that even though you brought me to the edge here, I understand that you could have been brought to the same edge or even farther or things far worse. At the end of the day, um, I think it was – i can't remember his name but there was a famous philosopher who spoke about uh if you believe that your uh experience is the worst experience on planet earth like you it's you're, it's ridiculous i i'm ter- terribly paraphrasing there but, no, no, but yeah, there's definitely been, an experience that's worse than the one that you're having even if you're at the rock bottom here in america you're poor you have nothing you could be poor and have nothing in another country where you know nothing nobody you have no means of communication there could be wildlife it, could get worse and if you have the ability to recognize that and create a foundation an actual floor so you can't keep falling then you can start building so you can start Mm -hmm. rising again and i feel like that's something that clearly you you, (laughs) just hearing your story and the things you've been through (laughs) must have been part of your ability to get to where you are now because you don't exude somebody who's in a dark place you exude somebody who is learned in the things that they had been through and is trying to exude that yeah. to others.
1: It's, you know, like I'd say, I really have a lot of joy in my life now. And let's not say my life is perfect or it's ideal. I mean, I have stressors. I, I've got a young son. He's just going to be turning a year here, year old here shortly. You know, becoming a father is like the most beautiful thing, but it's also an exhausting things. Any parents will tell you, you know, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I'm like, I got one. I don't know how people do it with four. I don't know. Maybe you just really, <laughs> But maybe it's, it's like, there's such a, like it's such a shift. Cause I, I was like 39 when my son was born. So you can imagine I lived nearly four decades of my life without being a parent and living this life of sort of freedom and adventure and freewheeling and traveling and all of this. And, and, and then of course COVID hits and, and, and you know, my son is born and, um, but there's, there's something about like just being a parent that like, he's like a best teacher I could ever have, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, I, what I love is like the place that I'm in. So I look, if I had been a dad five years earlier or 10 years earlier, I would not have made a good dad. I would have wanted to be a good dad, but I didn't, Mm. wouldn't have the degree of sort of understanding and compassion and that Mm. I do now, like, you know, just tonight, you know, before hopping on this call, I was, you know, I do jammy time. It's like one of my favorites usually because, you know, I put, (laughs) you know, I change his diaper, put his jammies on kind of, you know, blow raspberries on his tummy and just, you know, have fun (laughs) with this adorable (laughs) little human. But tonight he was just he was not in a great place. And so he was howling his head off like as though I was trying to yank his arms off while I'm changing his diaper, you know, and it's funny because he can flick it like a switch. So I'm like, I know where you get this from, kid, Um, (laughs) you know, But where probably younger me would have got like frustrated or angry at him for howling his head off. Instead, I was just I was really calm with him. I just chatted with him and said, hey, you know, what? it's okay. You're just telling me how you feel, you know. And it sounds maybe it sounds airy fairy to someone out there listening, but there's it's like he's using the only communication tool he has to express mm-hmm. the emotional state he's feeling right now. And right. Who, who am I to get angry when he's just trying to tell me I'm tired? I, I I don't know. I'm feeling all these mixed emotions right now. I'm not happy, you know. And mm-hmm. so, while it's not enjoyable having him belted out full volume, and he's got a set of lungs in him, he, he, you know, <laughs> it's amazing the volume these kids can crank out but to be able to have that, like I've also practiced meditation. And I'm actually just finishing up my own, um, my own uh, meditation instructor training as well. Mm. Um, just the ability to cultivate this calm presence of mind in the face of like this blood curdling screaming, that's like two inches from your ear. You know, it's actually <laughs> a pretty, pretty, pretty useful skill. And, yeah. and, you know, I really do have to credit like meditation, introspection, reflection, coaching, therapy, uh, support from my wife, support from my family. Like, man, it's like anybody out there who's struggling, it's like, get all the help and support you can and do not feel a a shred of shame about asking for help. This human life is like, man, it's tough wherever you live. It's tough. And it's going to knock you around and kick you and punch you. And you know, uh, I feel as though, and this is an observation, but I just wonder if like our younger generation lacks the same degree of emotional resilience as say, maybe the generation or two before ours who went through world wars, who went through you know, the great depression who went through just, and they did it without electricity. They did it with, let alone no internet, you know?
0: Yeah. Snail mail. I don't think people even understand, like you can't talk to the person on their side of the country.
1: You can't do that. Sorry, Let alone someone around the world.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) In real time, no less. Yeah. And and so I think, you know, it's like the key to being happy is is to expect life to be this, this mess. (laughs) It's like to, to let go, I think if we've been maybe conditioned to believe or have this idea that the world owes like the universe should conspire to give me a perfect life. And when we start from that place of entitlement or expectation, and it's really kind of a very self-centered narcissistic way of seeing things that I am so unique and special that the world should conspire to make me wealthy and give me fame and give me everything I want and give me no struggles and so on. And it's like, man, you're, you're in for a world of, of like disappointment because anyone with a sense of entitlement really cannot enjoy happiness because entitlement, you can only ever have your expectations met. And most times they're not met and you're left disappointed. Whereas when you cultivate a sense of gratitude and appreciation for what you have, no matter how small it is, your expectations are being exceeded. And the more times you you acknowledge my expectations are being exceeded, I have more than I need or you know more than I asked for. It's you, know, you. You gain a, a degree of resilience in the face of difficult circumstances.
0: Mm. So, uh, how did the? So, let's say, you, so you've gotten through the dark period and you're yeah. you're starting to bring yourself back. What was that kickstart that got you not only from feeling better, but you're like, I'm not. I'm not satisfied with just being healed personally. I want to spread this information, spread this feeling. I need to do yeah, more. What,
1: yeah. what kind of got you into wanting to do that? Well, I would say I'm going to adjust my butt here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say it was, it was a coach who worked with me. So I, I thought, for example, I just needed to lose weight. I'd be happy if I lost weight, I'd stop hating myself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and like the, the extra weight was just a, a reflection of the emotional turmoil in my case. And when he worked with me and he, instead of like talking down to me and making fun of me or, you know, saying, you know, better, like, why are you doing this? He approached it with this compassionate curiosity. Hey, you know what? You've, you've been through a lot. Let's just try and connect some dots here. Let's figure out what's happened, man. And, you know, it really... Um, shaped my approach. Like it, 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 it changed my life because he modeled for me what compassion and self compassion looked like when, when I was really, really needing that and it was missing from my life and to be taught from other men who I respect, who had accomplished things in life. Mm. Um, it was, it really carried weight. And I think I felt so appreciative for in particular, this, this gentleman's work with me that helped me through one of the darkest periods of my life that I was like, I, I need to help other people because I know like, he's only one guy, you know, and, and I, I know there's other people out there that have been through this kind of struggle. And, and so, um, I, I started doing my own nutrition coaching and I say nutrition really the cover story. That's the secret. It's like, yes, mm-hmm. I'm a qualified uh, nutritionist. And I, you know, I'm, I'm well-versed in behavioral psychology. Nutrition's is the cover story because food is the, is the emotional anesthetic It's what it is, mm-hmm. you know?
0: It's the one vice that nobody's going to hold you for necessarily.
1: If, if in all of my trauma, like I became a binge eating food addict, you know, um, and binge eating is this weird beast, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. it's like, I knew logically this behavior wasn't healthy or helping me, but it doesn't matter because it wasn't coming from the logical part of the brain It was coming from much more powerful, primal part of my brain that would drive these behaviors. And so, you know, um. You're right. Like drugs and alcohol, had I turned to those instead of food, you know, if food was, it was socially acceptable mm. and I would, I would encourage others to overeat, to kind of mask my own overeating behaviors. Mm. And so the, the one thing is we can live without drugs and alcohol. It's really hard to live without food. So we're mm-hmm. faced with it every day and, and we live in a world that's constantly, you know, coercing us to eat and mm-hmm. to eat junk food and eat unhealthy food. Like it's a real uphill battle for people. And so, I, you know, even to feel a sense of shame around being overweight, I'm like, let it go. Because we live in a world that's basically engineered to make us obese. Our brains have been hijacked. You look mm-hmm. at, you know, apps on our phone, social media. Um, you look at additives to, to, you know, food, artificial colors and flavors and sweeteners and things. So there's things our brain, there's sugar they're, and, and vegetables. Yeah. You know, uh, video yeah. games, pornography, like there's these super stimuli that are so beyond our brain's capacity to, to really process. And so, you know, or, you know, I think about if you've played like this really intense, intensive virtual reality video game, where you have these superpowers, You know, and, and you got the goggles and it's so real. And then you step away from that back into ordinary life. It can't even compare. Like you go from a dopamine high to like a state of depression and no wonder you want to go back to that video game. And you think about like the metaverse, I don't know if it's going to get any, go anywhere or not, but something like the metaverse, you know, you're going to create a bunch of depressed people because, and, and disconnected people as well, because you're living in this fantasy world on your couch, probably just getting unhealthier by the moment. And, you know, rather than, you know, doing something in the real world and creating meaningful human experiences like we're having right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, you know, you've seen the movie or uh, Ready Player One. I haven't. So it's, it's pretty funny. So it's pretty much a dystopian future in the context of things. But the entire world has access to a metaverse like situation where you can put on virtual reality and go into essentially any world and it's entirely immersive but real life is deplorable it is actually people are living in like junk stacks and they'll live in like tiny little rooms because they don't care because they're coming home to get on their virtual reality where they're this person or they have this or they have this persona so they're living life only so they can live a life that they've created somewhere else that doesn't really exist. And as much as I love the idea of Ready Player One and that technology and to be able to go into Star Wars and be a Jedi, I would never want to do that over living my own life here. And it's hard to... decide whether or not when they develop technologies like that when you see the state of things if that's not where they're just trying to push us into a greater state of laziness and consumption such that it's like wally where we're just yeah. sitting on a bunch of floating chairs overweight and not really understanding why we exist looking at screens all day
1: yeah you know that's that's the thing that like scares me and so like on the i, I like my kid sees us on computers because I run a I run an online business and he sees us on our phones. But I really you try, it. like he he he's not getting any like kid video time or anything like that. You're not watching Peppa Pig or any of this stuff. You're mm. you're playing with a ball, playing with a book, uh, playing with us. Mm. Anything other than interacting with a screen because we know what it does to a developing brain to a degree. I mean, we're conducting a worldwide experiment on on the long term ramifications, but we know in the short term this is not good for uh, for developing brain and so we're gonna be like technological luddites with this kid because he'll figure it out I mean you know I mean if I can figure out a smartphone at 26 this kid can figure it out you know at the age of you know 10 or something like that you know Mm -hmm. it's gonna
0: be unavoidable so in the very least if you can prevent it of being just integrated so young where they can learn to live life and then that becomes a tool as opposed to
2: like another limb
0: I yeah. think that allows for someone to not have the habitual addictions to technology and the t- uh, conveniences that we have, because at the end of the day, all it would take to take out America is turn off the Internet. Yeah, Just turn it off for a week and people will lose their minds.
1: Yeah, you know that that's like such a such an interesting thought experiment. You know, detonate an EMP. Don't I uh, don't. I mean, obviously, I'm not. Yeah, please, you. please don't don't do that, my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, th- this is literally just you know me thinking like exactly that. You detonate uh, you know an elect- electromagnetic pulse bomb in the atmosphere and fry all the electronics. What skills do we have? Mm-hmm. What life skills do we have? You know, like I can sort of plant a few seeds and I've got some, you know, maybe stuff stocked up in case, you know, the poop hits the proverbial fan or, or things like that. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: y- this drags on for any length of time. And, and we're all hooped because we're just going to descend into looting and chaos and killing each mm-hmm. other. For for that, no reason. It's for crazy. No, it like, because, because you don't have the
0: that internet, now you have to be, uh, have a lack of civility. And it's, it's absolutely insane. But... Uh, To kind of go back a little bit here, I know you
1: said that you have two podcasts and then you're working on a third. I I have three now. So, yeah, the third one just launched recently a couple of weeks ago. So the first one, my my main one, my flagship one is called Between the Before and After. And that's Mm -hmm. really about exploring um, human stories of overcoming significant obstacles. So the way I think about it it is like social media shows you a before and after picture, but it doesn't really give you the depth to expand we're inspired by stories so human beings love stories because we read ourselves into them and stories have like a sticking power in our mind and when we read ourselves into another inspiring story it gives us hope about the possibilities and the potential that lies within us Rather than just seeing a before and after where we go, I could never, you know, do that. But it's like when you hear the story about the things they went through, like, hey, maybe even hearing my story, somebody might be inspired by that and go, okay, mm-hmm. it is possible to get out of PTSD, trauma, food addiction, binge eating, depression, anxiety, you know, like, it's not an easy road. This is like, mm-hmm. like, I, I rattle off all those things. And we've talked about it for a little over an hour, but this like covers a 10 year span of my life. You know, right. this didn't, yeah, there's didn't
0: a lot going on there. And there was no a lot going days. on in the small gaps as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. The no 21 day fix for this, you know. Um, the second one is called Wellness Unfiltered. So that's uh, more of a panel discussion with myself and a couple of co-hosts where we're looking at everything that's wrong with the the way that we view health. Like the it's we have a sickness system. that's just everyone's waiting for a diagnosis. They're waiting to just in mm-hmm. a, you know hand me the pill. And, and so we you know because we lack the fundamental knowledge. Like uh, my one of my co hosts Chris. She often says like you know we've never read the owner's manual for this meat machine we're driving it. You know, <laughs> it's yeah, like, can't find the download for it either. Right, right. So it's like we we know so little uh, uh, on the average person knows so little about how the body functions, and they just kind of go through life. And it's like we shouldn't be figuring out these things in our mid thirties or forties or fifties or sixties. Like we, should. yeah. And so we're trying to be a contributor to you know helping people think differently about health to become a participant as opposed to a patient, and and mm. create like education and conversations around this, and show people the different kinds of resources that are actually available and accessible to them outside of the traditional medical paradigm. Um, then the third one is more like a guilty pleasure for me. Um, it's called, it's not so black and white. And this oh. is a space, the the working title of it, as I was like building this out or, or thinking about what I wanted to do with it was like a safe space for dangerous conversations. Um, oh, okay. But, but I I think maybe it sounds less provocative and inflammatory to say it's not so black and white, because really it was not about necessarily incendiary rhetoric or or inflammatory conversations but actually about civil discourse nuanced discussion around difficult topics where where we can you know because i believe that censorship pushes people into extreme silos it doesn't you, you know the whole uh, from game of thrones it was that you cut out a man's tongue you don't prove that he's wrong you just prove you're scared of what he has to say mm-hmm. you know and so it's like we need to create spaces where people can have these conversations and yeah they, they might get taken apart by the public discourse but I don't believe censorship is the way out of it. It's the whole, how did you get to that place where you hold that view you have? And so I wanted to create mm-hmm. a, a space. And so it's a panel discussion between myself and a couple of co-hosts. Um, some are intermittent, but we want to have these conversations, right? And we'll bring on special guests as well. I think like my next week's guest. So we go live with, it's not so black and white um, on Monday nights at 730 Mountain Time so it'll be 9:30 Eastern 6:30 Pacific and next okay. week we have we have a guy who ran Barack Obama's Twitter handle actually coming on really? yeah for this <laughs> next week this, uh, this Monday night so that should be an interesting one uh it's wow. myself um you, one you of should check that
0: out junkers this Monday yeah night.
1: yeah yeah uh, my co-host Lamar he grew up in like Harlem and and and, and the Bronx you know and so it's like I'm I'm a white dude from small town Canada. My buddy Lamar grew up in like inner city New York. And so us just <laughs> us just bridging this this gap and like it started with us just having these conversations. And we were like, we should document these conversations because you know I've learned so much from him, and he's you know, he's he's learned a few, I'd like to say I think he's learned a few things from me. Um, but it just this huge cultural gap. But we you know, like when the BLM protests were happening and things like that, like um you know, I said, what is your take on this? You know? And, and, and I was like, why, you know, why do you think this is, this is okay. Or this is like, you know, so for me to like, and he was really gracious in terms of, you know, I had a lot of difficult questions where I was like, can I ask, and like, I don't want to sound ignorant, but I'm going to ask you mm-hmm. these hard questions because I want to learn about this situation. And it didn't be, you know, and he was really gracious and, and he was very well-spoken. He's got a voice like Barry White, you know, and it's funny. <laughs> that
0: I am. Okay,
1: my, my nickname for him is Jacked Black, um, So that's funny.
0: We actually had one of our co hosts on the break room. Um, he kind of looks like Jack Black, but he's darker, so he has the name Uh, Jack Blacker. Oh, Um,
1: (laughs) that's funny. Well, I just call him Jack Black because he's 48 and he's he's an impressive physical specimen. I'm like, you're Jacked, like, and uh, (laughs) Jacked Black, okay. I like that yeah yeah yeah. so so he's he's an impressive physical specimen he's got this like deep voice this is made for radio and i'd love to hear him sing like like Mm. this deep resonant baritone i'm like oh my gosh he's and he's really he's brilliant with analogies and he's he's such a a deep thinker and it's so interesting you know for example like you know not so long he lives in north carolina right now but um not so long ago he was uh, just filling up with gas at the gas station went in to pay and when he came back out a lady said uh hey just to let you know that guy in that pickup truck over there spit on your door handle He's like, Oh, and you know, it's it's some uh, white redneck dude in a pickup truck who was had his phone out ready to film him trying to create a situation. Mm. And I was like, Man, and Lamar is way smarter than that, right? Like, he's ex-military, he's paramedic in New York City, he's been Mm. man, he's got stories. This guy has been through hell and worse than that. He was he was at 9 11 his partner died. Oh wow, (laughs) like as a paramedic in New York City, you know, he, he was bombed in Iraq when he was in the air force, like. Some guy spitting on his door handle is not going to rattle him. <laughs> like, no. <you> know, <laughs> and if it uh, does,
0: that's not a good day for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And it's funny because I think as, as he came out and this guy saw me, he, he actually took a step back. He's like, oh my God, like this guy's <laughs> a lot bigger in, in real life, you know? Uh, but like Lamar's not going around looking for a fight. But he said it was so interesting from his experience because he was now. Um, he was like looking around like, is this guy following me? Did he record my license plate? Is he want to see where I live? Is he going to harass my wife? He's all these thoughts coming through his head now that wouldn't have been there. And it's like, you know, I've never had an experience like that. Well, okay. I, I, maybe I have actually. Okay. Um, but I mean, <laughs> how about in Canada, I've never had an experience like that. I've lived in, in seven other foreign countries where I've had some really, as you know, now have <laughs> had some interesting experiences.
0: Yes. But, a few, few little interesting experiences. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we've bonded over a lot of these things. And so we wanted to create a, a space for these kinds of conversations where we can, we can go into the hard topics we can ask the hard questions and not get pissed off at each other, but really respectfully like, and and even sometimes just agree to disagree on something and go, Hey, we can agree to disagree and still be civil with each other. So, you know, I, you know, I consider him like an uncle to my kid. He's like a Brother to me, I love him. You know, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't matter if we disagree on something, you know, because of the, the connection that we've forged is so much more important. And then I've got a couple of other cool co hosts and, and whatnot. Like, it's, you know, I'd really, I'm really yeah. interested to see where that one goes. Clearly, by how much attention or air I'm giving it, you can see, like, I'm passionate about this. Yes. You know,
0: and you really should be as well, because the value of discourse that can lead mm-hmm. to a disagreement is completely uh, undervalued because people don't understand that that's how you get an exchange of ideas. That's how you begin to learn the opposite side. That's how you begin to deconstruct your own bias and actually form an opinion. And people don't do that. They don't have the ability to do that. They all react and think with their heart and their emotions. They don't actually Mm -hmm. know what they're saying or why they're really saying it. Most of them are parrot talking because they wanna be able to have something to talk about, but everybody's surface dwelling so, they don't need to know more. So, as soon as you begin to dive right. a little bit more, people get offended because now you're starting to show that they don't know what they're talking about and they took a very hard stance on a topic that's complicated. It's yeah. popular to have an opinion on something very difficult and it doesn't matter if you're educated because nobody's going to check because they're not educated. Yeah. Uh, which is what? why the whole uh, not to. Sidestep, but yeah, yeah. the whole cover of uh, how Ukraine and what's mm. going on, the amount of live streams and videos and just d- memes and jokes that I see is it just such a hard evidence of the disconnect that people have from reality and not understanding yeah. this is not something that you should be joking about. And yeah. it's bizarre that it's something that is being live streamed and recorded on phones during a battle. Like that's that's crazy. I know we have footage of World War II, but it wasn't yeah. the man with the weapons that are standing yeah. there doing it, you know?
1: It's well and, and what I can say, having lived in Eastern Europe and traveled around Eastern Europe is the situation is a lot more nuanced than just Putin bad, Ukraine good. Mm-hmm. Yes. It is it is a like there is a messy quagmire in there. Um, It goes back to
0: Crimea and people don't even know what that means.
1: Oh, look, Crimea was owned by Russia. They gifted it to the Ukrainians in 1954. Who who even knows that that was the case? And Mm -hmm. they took it back because they were like, if Ukraine comes NATO, we lose this really valuable seaport. It's one of our, our," and so on. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that would be we'll have to have another. another There's a whole
0: other talk right there. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the idea is it's not to say that I am, for example, that I'm pro-Russian just because I don't think Putin is 100 percent at fault here. That's, mm-hmm. that's where we get trapped in this binary thinking and we lose the ability to think with nuance because at the ever. end of the day, who is suffering here? It's the average Ukrainian person who, who is essentially caught in this battle, this power struggle between mm-hmm. different elites, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, like no, I didn't mention this earlier, but living in Poland and, you know, seeing Ukraine. Some of the most racist people I have ever met in my life, mm-hmm. and it, it comes, it's like it it. It shocked me, like the things that I heard them say. And then, you know, people think that this whole like, you know, neo-Nazi thing in Ukraine is a a cover story. I'm like, you don't realize how deep this runs. Like they have an entire army battalion of neo-Nazi, sworn neo-Nazis. They have neo-Nazis in every structure of of government right up until they reach Zelensky, who's not one. But he's a puppet and they use his Jewishness to cover for the fact that like half of his government is these extremist white nationalists who believe they're fighting. I mean, this guy, the leader, one of the leaders of this movement is on camera like a day or two ago being recorded saying these idiots from the west think they're supporting us in this fight against russia they don't realize we're actually white nationalists fighting for the white race and, and so and it was just this crazy stuff <laughs> that i was like he's publicly say- like this is the thing they're publicly saying this stuff it blows my mind but it doesn't oh, wow. get coverage because it's inconvenient because it goes yeah. against the narrative of just like you know putin bad because russia's our historical enemy it's like i don't agree mm. with war i don't agree with invading another country However. I come from this place of let's try to understand why this happened. Why did he choose this course of action? And I bet you it's a lot more nuanced than, someone, since, than, than the average person realizes who just collects like media sound bites. And it's Absolutely. like if we want to create change, we have to be able to put ourselves in this place where we go, I don't agree with the move that you took, but I understand from your perspective why you took that move. And, and in that place, we can actually start to maybe be an agent for change instead of mm. just like butting heads with each other.
0: Very well said. Well, uh, sir, John, the legendary, thank you for being <laughs> on with us today and giving us a legendary interview. I know this was longer than our junkers are usually used to, but you know what? I'm not Jason. We don't do it like Jason. We do it like, yeah, me. yeah, yeah. We come together. We do our own things. And that's how we meet wonderful people like yourself, John. Uh, before we head out here, do you want to let us know where we can find you, your social medias, your website, anything like
1: that? Yeah. Freedomnutritioncoach.com. And and really on all the social platforms, if you just look up Freedom Nutrition Coaching, you'll find me. And of course you heard about my podcast between the before and after wellness unfiltered and it's not so black and white so depending on what your flavor is you know um, there's a few different options there, and you know what? You can send me a friend request on, you know, like on Facebook, for example. I'm I, I don't go by Sir John the Legendary. I actually just go by my real name. <laughs> but uh, you know, hey, and if someone out there is listening and you got a podcast and like, hey, this was interesting. I'd like to chat with this guy. I mean, clearly, I like talking. So you know, I'm also <laughs> open to to connecting with people as well because I really there's such value in having conversations like this. Like you and I are going to walk away from this conversation having gotten value. You know, you express some really cool sentiments, and I'm like, I feel almost bad that that I've like. Been so enthusiastically talking that like we didn't pick not right at door. all that, that's what
0: i wanted i wanted you to be able to express and tell because i knew there was a lot for you to tell and you you definitely <laughs> shared at least a portion yeah. with us yeah and i'm very so, thankful for that
1: yeah and thank you for hosting this space i mean it's amazing that you guys do this and create this platform as well i think it's 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 awesome so it's been a real pleasure
0: Thank you, John. Well, thank you, Junkers. Uh, Be sure to check out all three of his podcasts and be sure to check us out, Talking Junk in the Break Room. Unfortunately, we'll be taking a day off tomorrow. Sorry about that. You're going to have to go a week without us, but we'll be coming up the following week. I think we're going to be talking about Jackass forever. Uh, If you haven't seen that, check it out. Definitely a throwback, especially from our age. Absolutely hilarious. But until next next time, Junkers, you have a wonderful night. We'll talk to you later welcome to talking junk i'm your host jason melendez, melendez. live now every week on friday talking junk A multitude of professionals in different aspects different walks of life you have to come on and talk junk like a normal person <laughs>